Hey there, wonderful listeners. It's Stuart Bell here, uh, founder of Aldere, business coach, author of Innovation, and creator of the Leverage Advice Firm program. What a mouthful. Uh, and thank you once again for listening to The Finnovator. Uh, you know, sometimes you get the opportunity to meet some people that uh, I guess, if not idolized, and certainly when you're in an early stage of your career, whether you're a sports person, whether you're a professional, whether you're a coach, you know, you look up to them and go, now I wish I could be there one day. Uh, and then you become, have the opportunity to get to know them personally. And then next thing you know, you get to do some work with them. Chris Wrightson is one of those kind of people. Uh, Chris, I first came into contact when during my early graduate days when I was at MLC. Uh, he was the head honcho, the guy, one of the guys who'd come in from IPAC, which anybody who remembers back to the late 90s, early 2000s will know how much of a success story IPAC was in their ability to you know, have a proposition that was about great sort of front-end client engagement and ultimately creating a single business model that, that many different advisors could utilize to, to spend some more time in, the, in the, you know, the front stage stuff. Yeah, doesn't that sound sort of uh, compelling and still enduring as a proposition? Uh, Chris has moved on. He's got lots going on. Uh, but we caught up a lot over these last three or four years. He's become a big mentor of mine and the opportunity to sit down with him and really have a one-to-one -one conversation uh, where we dived into this key question of what is it if you're an advisor looking to grow a business and maybe you want to go past just having a lifestyle business or you want to go past just having a good business and you want to create a big, big firm. And even if you don't, from my perspective, I think if you can create a business that can deal with three times the capacity that you currently do, well, if it's only a one time, it's going to make it much easier to, to, uh, to, to, to manage, right? Uh, well, in this podcast, we ask that key question, what are the things that a firm like this would have to have in place and what, how would it be valued? What are the key components? And uh, what I love about this is how clearly uh, Chris drew upon not just his, his experiences working with IPAC, but everything since then. And funny enough, there's a, there's a moment in this podcast, and see if you can spot it, where Chris maybe has this realization on the spot that the rules he applied uh, there's consistency all the way through from post IPAC and all the businesses he's worked with. It's kind of that realization, you know, when <laughs> you've been so good at cooking a, a, a meal for so long and you realize, oh my God, you know, there's a recipe to it. But anyway, I hope you enjoy this. I certainly did. It, it was an incredibly useful uh, discussion. I know people who were there got a lot out of it. So let me hand us over to uh, the anatomy of a super firm with Chris Wrightson. You know what, let's just dive in because uh, we've got a lot of content to get through and I want to sort of give you a bit of background about Chris Wrights and I'm going to get him to do more of this, most of this uh, introduction because uh, he's a guy who has been uh, around the industry for, for a while. Uh, when back at MLC, I remember Chris came into MLC and he, he was recruited as a bit of a superstar and the first thing I noticed about Chris is even, you know, when I was fresh and young and, and all the rest of it, his willingness to kind of just share everything, just be really open and that's just continued and I've had the great pleasure of knowing Chris in a business sense, but also kind of in a, you know, as a, as a, as a friend and meeting up with him regularly to talk about our businesses. He's kept me accountable for stuff. We've batted around ideas. We've discovered that there's, you know, there's so much synergy between what, my do, what we do. And when I said to him about a month ago, I'd love to get on with you and really give people the opportunity to share, you know, your vision, uh, some of the stuff you're working on, some of the stuff you date day to day, but more importantly, you know, what it would look like and what you see as being a great firm so they can take that information uh, and take the bits and pieces and really have a clear idea if that's what they want to do. Even if it's, their goal isn't massiveness, but um, 
but their goal is efficiency and to build a business they love that has impact, what would that look like? So I'm really sort of grateful to Chris for his time today. So we're going to dive straight in and we'll kick this baby down the road. Kick this can, put it up a flagpole, up a post and see who salutes and all the rest of it. Chris, mate, are you there? Morning. Mr. Wrightson, welcome. Thank you. How has your week been? That's what I want to know. Actually, my week's been good. Uh, it's been a bit of a short week, but uh, we got a bit done and we had a little win during the week. What about yours? Most of you would know Stuart entered or had a new baby enter his household a while ago, a short while ago, and sometimes sleep is lacking. How are you going with that this week? Yeah, mate, uh, I, all I can say is babies are like the worst. Babies and toddlers are like the worst flatmate ever. You know, you had that person you used to live with at university. They don't do the washing up. They don't clean up. They don't play the rant. But then just when you think <laughs> yeah. you've reached, uh, they, you know, they, stay, they, they play music all night long, but they're the most charming, entertaining person. So you kind of put up with them. So uh, that's kind of where I'm at. I'm like, oh, it's, it's hard. But, you know, you, but we were talking about this the other day and you, you shared with me that I'm here doing it with a, I got a three-year-old or three-and-a-half-year-old and a, a nine-month-old. You did three under three, didn't you? Yes, we did, and uh, at times uh, I had a military career and sometimes I was awake for, I don't know, 48 hours at a time in the military. Sometimes with those three kids, it felt like it went longer than that. Like the days just went on forever and ever and ever. So the days are long, but of course the years are short. So you've got to enjoy it. And I understand at the moment we're, uh, I don't know if I can, well, I'm going to say it anyway, but you're looking for uh, a new place at the moment, aren't you? We are looking for a new house. We've got a, we've sold our house. We're uh, moving into a rented house next week while we look around and try and buy. Yeah, it's a challenge. Cool. Uh, well, if anybody knows of uh, huge, amazing palatial houses on the North Shore, Chris would appreciate your guidance on that, I'd imagine. Yeah, if they're cheap. Yeah, well, there you go. that's the other thing. So uh, today we're talking about this thing of uh, the anatomy of a super firm, but I'd love to sort of, for those who don't know you, um, let's get a bit of background. You know, uh, tell a bit about you know, what, what you do uh, and who you help and how you got there. Well, what we do today is pretty simple. We help owners of financial services businesses maximise sale value and reduce risk in sale and succession planning of their assets. So most of our work is for the owners of financial services businesses and it's all about sale and succession planning and how you uh, optimise your results in that space. That's what we do. Okay. How'd you get into it, man? Yeah, okay, that's a pretty, uh, uh, that's a longer answer. It's a, it's a bit okay. of a journey in terms of how we got there. But maybe if I go back a step and sort of talk about, the, give some context where I've come from. So I got into this business because of a previous role and that was related to a company called IPAC. But before that, I, um, I started in, uh, let me show my age here, I started in the late 80s. I ran my own advice business. And if anyone was in the industry back then, it was very, very different. Um, and so in about 1992, um, there was a whole change in legislation and annuities became very popular for retirees and interest rates were very high. And I'd helped a bunch of retirees into annuities. But what was required then was um, uh, a settling form every quarter to manage their asset and liability position and their pension. Now, the annuities were very favourable. The interest rates were very high. Um, a lot of those, or some of those clients I still know today and they've got annuities paying sort of 8% and they're ecstatic. Anyway, the point was I found that the, the, um, the, the, the industry at that point was all about upfront commissions. And while I'd been paid great upfront commissions for the sale of annuities under an advice process, you'd argue, um, what I found was I had to go back and look after these people every quarter and help them with their Centrelink forms. 
And what I quickly realized was the model that I was, business model I was using was not sustainable. And business mm -hmm. models are something that I've already ha always had a real interest in. So I went looking for a better business model. And at about that time, I stumbled across a group called IPAC. Now, it was 1993 when I actually joined IPAC, but I had a look at them for about six months. And I went to and I eventually joined IPAC as an advisor. And the reason I joined IPAC is they'd started their business in 87 and um, they'd recognised that charging a commission or a fee for advice and placing investments wasn't the way to make money or sustainable for them or the client. So they yeah. were already charging ongoing advice fees to their clients to provide ongoing services. And as a business model, that was very attractive to me. Yeah. So I got to this place called IPAC. So I guess that's one critical piece of background that sort of took me on the journey to where I am now. You're, um, you're pretty, you're pretty uh, modest about the whole IPAC thing because as I understand it, being you know, relatively junior at MLC and learning my way, you, you pretty much helped create it, right? If not, created it. <laughs> I don't know. I think you might be exaggerating a bit, but yeah. So look, the IPAC thing was, there was five guys when they started and you sort of say, what was the secret recipe for IPAC? That was part of it, five partners. When I got there, there were 33 people or something. When we sold it in 2002 to AXA, there was 260 people. So it grew a lot and it had to do a lot of things along the way. And, you know, for the first few years at IPAC, I was actually an advisor until I moved into management roles. Um, and part of that, probably the key components of, of that that influenced my career was I was very passionate about advice. Good advice makes a difference in people's lives. And I wanted to impact as many people as I could with yep. this particular advice process that IPAC had. So one of my earliest roles after being an advisor was to, IPAC had been evolving and developing an advice model that was not just a business model, but an advice process for clients that was quite different to the way the rest of the industry was giving advice in the 90s. And yep. my, one of my first roles was to document the IPAC advice process for clients and yeah. um, turn that into a training program so we could train more advisors. And so I did that and uh, I trained probably a couple of hundred advisors and then I trained a couple more coaches. And once we had that capability, we knew we had a consistent advice model that could yeah. be replicated by any advisor and take any client to the same financial advice outcome. So yeah. because client circumstances change slowly over time, but if you put different advisors in front of different clients, I mean the same client, you can often get very different financial plans if you don't have a consistent, repeatable advice process. So this, this kind that. of really talks to me because uh, I, I went at the time in Matt was part of the, I was working in the advice of the client uh, A to C process in, in, within MLC. So mm. I have a feeling that a lot, of, a lot of the idea or the concept behind it of having that consistent, do it this way, do it that way, um, you know, came from, from your influence and from IPACs. But you know, how, I'm really interested, what are some of the challenges that you found in getting people to, to kind of do it the same way? Yeah, so a repeatable advice process, first of all, it's really important if you're gonna build a super firm, and we'll probably define a super firm later, that you have a repeatable advice process because it's the advice process that starts the whole operations of a business. It's the expectations clients have based on what's said and what's not said in a client meeting Mm -hmm. that set the whole parameters for the way a business model is going to operate. So you've got this smiley face, if you like, you know, of a client and at the very top of the pyramid, you've got this advisor interacting with the client. If that's not a repeatable process, it gets really hard to build out a scalable advice firm, a large advice firm. 
um, with multiple advisors because you become very inefficient um, back through the, the pyramid of support if you don't have a repeatable advice process. The real challenge was, first of all, convincing advisors that you weren't actually producing a sausage machine. What you yeah. were producing was an advice process. It's a bit like, you know, if, you, if you're running a motor vehicle factory, if you're producing Commodores, the production com you know, look, line looks like this. If you're producing Mercedes, the production line looks like that. You can produce different cars, but the process to get to the end result is the same, yeah? And so convincing advisors first that an advice process wasn't a sausage machine, and that had to be a lived experience. We had to coach them and take them through it. And at the end, they recognised that actually every client's plan is entirely different. But the way to take a client there is a lot to do with two things, behavioural finance and adult learning principles. And then when you yeah. bring those together, you need certain tools to allow clients to make decisions, informed yep. choice. Can you give me an example of what those tools might be? Yeah, look, so the classic one, and back in the 90s, IPAC had to build their own to do this, was what we called dynamic modelling. So the advice process relied on not risk profiling for making um, any investment decisions. It relied on um, an objectives-based planning approach, which has become yep. more common in the industry, but it's still not well understood or delivered. So when you think about an objectives-based advice approach, you start with the client's objectives. That should come as no shock for any planner. The next step is a calculation tool or model that allows you to work out what rate of return will allow the client to achieve their objectives in the future based on their current assets, current cash flow and current expenditure and future yep. predicted expenditure. So that, in other words, what's the minimum thing you need to get in order to achieve the yeah. outcome? Yeah. Well, often clients, if you put it the right way, you'd say to clients, do you want to know what the minimum return is or the minimum risk investment is you could use to achieve your objectives? And we're all risk adverse, tolerance varies. Most mm -hmm. of say, yeah, I know what the minimum amount of risk is I can take. So you start with objectives. You then use um, dynamic modelling and calculations to show the client what different rates of return will do to their future. That then takes you to an um, asset allocation decision, which you can quickly convert into a risk conversation. So you start with objectives, then you move to a total return required, then you talk about allocation and risk required. You don't start with risk profiling having done an objectives conversation. I hate risk profiling. I just think, you know what? I'm, so, I'm just waiting for a client to challenge it because I don't know if there's any psychological basis behind it whatsoever. Well, no, there's lots of models for it. Models are good. I mean, the whole world is built on models and there's always a human decision or overlay in any model. Someone built the model, someone interprets the model, someone uses the model. At the end of the day, we had a lot of conversations with ASIC back then when we told them we didn't do risk profiling. Mm. What we did was... Uh, gave clients a choice of risk profile based on how much return they needed, calculated. And we used, you know, Monte Carlo simulations and those sort of things to get ranges of return and outcomes. So the challenge was building the process and convincing advisors, then the tools you needed. So we had to build the tools ourselves then. You don't need to build yep. those tools today. They live in yep. things like, um, I think in COIN it's called Pyramid. And I think in X-Plan it's called X-Plus or X-Tools Plus. X-Tools. Recently. Yeah. Um, and it was all about configuring your meetings with clients or your meeting process or engagement process, particularly for new clients, so that you could do that dynamic modelling in front of the client and have the client making the decisions. And, of course, you change the, that changes the nature of the advisor-client relationship. The whole relationship starts to focus on what the client needs to do and the choices mm -hmm. they have to make, and it takes all the focus away from investment products 
There's just an assumed rate of return and therefore a required portfolio. I love, love and that so much. Day, that was a very, very different approach to um, getting clients to an outcome and it led to a very different economic model for the business. I love it. Yeah. And uh, it just makes, like, it makes more sense to me because it's easier. It's easier to do it that way than trying to go into a, 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 a first appointment, literally solve someone's problem within an hour. Yeah. How do you factor in dynamic markets and meeting the minimum return? You don't want to fall short. Yeah, it's a great question. So it's uh, all, all the modeling was done using Monte Carlo simulations, which is really out to two standard deviations. So we'd have a conversation with a client that it goes something like, James, quite clearly from this model, you need to achieve 4% above inflation. Yeah, that's what the model shows because that's just simple maths. What we can't do is produce a portfolio that we can guarantee will produce 4% above inflation next year. But what mm -hmm. we can do is build something that over time is most likely to deliver that. But what you need to know, James, is in year one, we could get a return between plus 18 and minus 17 or plus 16 mm -hmm. and minus eight. We knew what those one year outcomes were based on the Monte Carlo simulations. And then we knew and then we turn that into a dollar amount. So we'd say, James, based on the million dollars you're investing today, if we get plus 18%, we're going to be at 1,180. If we get minus 15%, we're going to be at 850,000 at the end of the first year. If it fell yep. to that level, what is it that you, yeah, how would you feel? I'm sure you won't feel good. Would it cause you to sell? And if the client says, yeah, I couldn't hold the portfolio, then we'd start to risk, reduce the risk profile band, which would drive the return down in the dynamic model and then the graphic in the model would change for the client and the client would suddenly get this whole context around okay if i take less risk i get less return and now i don't retire at 60 or my money doesn't last till i'm 108 so you bring it back to the client's objectives it's a very powerful approach and look the data we're using has been around forever it's still there today their funnels are down great work Stu. Um, and that it's just the way you use that information you don't use it in a risk profiling sense, you bring it back to the client's objectives. So again, we sort of, we're talking about a repeatable advice process here and what made IPAC different and special then. All the focus was on advice and on people's objectives um, and the investment portfolio was just a given. Clients just yeah. accepted the investment portfolio. We didn't have to sell any product or any solution per se. Love it. And that funnels a doubt thing. I remember when I first came in, eventually, uh, I think MLC had to get rid of it because some of the boffins looked at it and went, well, that's not actually mathematically true. Uh, but the big idea was, you know, over time, if you, can, if you consistently have a uh, strategic uh, asset allocation, then you stick to it, then eventually the likelihood of you getting return narrows. Unfortunately, when you do a Monte Carlo, it's as equally, you know, the, the extremities are that... Um, if you get you know 20 years of bad returns then obviously you're out there but that's 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 kind of a, the, the the general idea as i understood it yeah so you're right the funnel of doubt is gives you yeah, it's not actually mathematically correct but it delivers the concept to the client well there's a second set of data you need with it which most groups don't use which is the chance of the return falling inside the band and outside the band so we also had that data as well so it's about layers of data yeah. and i'd argue that's far more informative and far more directive for a client than most of the risk profiling questionnaires that are out there today. Totally agree. Which I mean, leads, like leads to the same investment solution. Uh, you know, it's just how you understand what it's going to do for you. Let's get stuck into this idea of a super firm. Uh, and we were chatting about this before and, and sort of Chris quite rightly turned around and said, Stu, before we dive into the nuts and bolts, uh, let's talk about, you know, what it is. So over to you, what's your definition of a super firm? Yeah. Okay. Probably needs a bit of context and actually, 
maybe just to tie off that last conversation. So IPAC went on this journey. You know, when we sold it, we sold it in 2002 to AXA. Actually, we sold it in 1996 to the Commonwealth Bank. We sold half of it to the Commonwealth Bank in 1996 uh, and the shareholders owned half. Uh, and then in 1998, the Commonwealth Bank bought Colonial, Colonial Mutual, I think it was still back then. And so they lost all interest in IPAC because IPAC was, you know, Colonial was 10 times bigger than IPAC. So in 99, 2000, with the help of UBS private equity, we bought that half back from the CBA. And in 2002, all of IPAC was sold to AXA for about oh, 14 and a half, 15 times EBIT. Wow. And so earlier on, Stu, you asked me, how did I get into this succession M&A buying and selling business yeah. role? Uh, when UBS came on board, private equity firm, they gave us a right flogging at the P&L and balance sheet level, but they also said we needed to grow quickly. So they trained myself and two others to go out and do M&A work. So we went out and acquired advisory firms and equity stakes and advisory firms to grow IPAC quickly. And that was a really successful model because we already had a business model and a client advice process that was easy for us to train, coach and replicate in other practices. So it was essentially a franchise in disguise. It kind of was. Um, mm. It's very powerful. I mean, we were talking to planners about moving from upfront fees to ongoing fees in 99, 2000, and how much more money and value they'd create. And that was, so it was an easy sell. I mean, we're in a different point in time now, but uh, that was the, the background to it. So what's a super firm? I think there's two types of super firms out there. There's, and, and it really depends for you as a business owner what your life is about and what being a business owner is about for you. So, um, you know, a super firm can be a practice that's turning over seven or $800,000 and it's you and your two assistants and you've got 80 or 100 clients or whatever and your life balance is perfect and you don't want to change that and you make a few hundred thousand dollars a year and that's all you need. I guess another definition of a super firm might be the very large scalable firms that sell at 10 times EBIT, 12 times EBIT, 14 times EBIT. The firms that attract those very high EBIT multiples do tend to be quite large and have okay. scalable advice processes, client engagement models, back office processes, their own products and services and those sorts of things. So most of what I'm going to talk to you about today is, um, I guess, a super firm in terms of what does it take to get to 10 times EBIT? What do you need to do? What will the firm look like? And look, the best examples in the marketplace are IPAC and in fact, Shadforce, which um, I also know quite a bit about because I did quite a bit of transaction work with Shadforce over time. So I can talk to, talk to those two. So what is it about what's going on right now? And I know you've got plenty to say about that that makes sort of talking about this topic or looking at it important now. Yeah, I think from my perspective, this is a very exciting time to be in the advice industry. It's probably more exciting with more opportunity than there has you know, probably since the last time it felt like this was about 99, 2000. And okay. in, in the 90s, most people were charging upfront fees and taking a very small trail. And it was all about moving to a 1% ongoing fee. In fact, when I joined IPAC in 1993, they were charging a 1.9% ongoing advisory fee but that was instead of a six or eight percent up front so you can imagine yeah. what that did to your business model most of you wouldn't be charging that today but anyway now's a very exciting time why is it exciting well it's exciting because there's so much opportunity now because the industry's at a massive inflection point commissions are disappearing 
there's significant margin pressure, there's significant competition for advice. You've got industry funds having advisors, you've got accountants trying to be advisors. You've got regulatory pressure with increasing standards for education and compliance burden. And then you've got technology. And technology is going to shape the way the industry behaves over the next 10 years. And so, you know, we've seen nothing yet, in my view, in terms of what that means for advisory firms. So you put all that into the mixing pot, shake it all up and say, well, so what, what does all that mean? Well, what it means is whenever you get a lot of disruption or change in any industry, there is plenty of opportunity. And for people that have a longer term view and have an appetite to perhaps grow a larger firm, make a difference in more clients' lives with advice, build a bigger business, now is the perfect time because a lot of the incumbents in the industry, the people that have dominated for the last 30 years, have models that don't deal or cope with. They've got too much invested in their old models and won't cope with that change. A lot of accountants that are sort of getting licensed now so they can do SMSFs, they will struggle in the next five years because what yeah. they'll find is delivering financial planning advice the way they need to under the new regime actually isn't as easy as they thought it was going to be and they can't just keep using it as a tool to set up self-managed super funds and do nothing else. So there is lots of opportunity and the biggest opportunity of all, which is the one we need to tap into, is that despite all of that change and all of that technology and all that regulatory burden, the client, there is going to be more clients in the next 10 years than there were in the last 10 years and all of them, despite technology, are still going to be time poor and they're still going to be looking for a service provider that's easy to access, trusted and makes it efficient. So I think in the next 10 years, you'll see advice businesses that deliver financial planning advice, the way we might look at it, tax and accounting advice, finance advice. Mm -hmm. Almost what we talked about 15 years ago, we talked about the one-stop shop. There wasn't the demand or the delivery capability for the one-stop shop. I think 10 years from now it'll become really common because our clients will actually still be time poor. Mm. And if they can get quality advice on all of the, their financial affairs from one provider, they'll go there. So See, I, uh, I want to jump in because one of the things when I, uh, early 2000s that MLC was so focused on was this idea of it's almost like a, a Jim Stackwell's model, which is you know the, the, the hub and spoke. But as mm. you said, there just wasn't the ability to pull it all together in, in anything but the most... Uh, superficial way and there was questions about you know if an advisor is getting legal advice on behalf of a client where does it sit in terms of the regulatory framework um, but now you know we've just it's suddenly looking at it and as you said with technology you, you have this opportunity uh, to sort of pull it all together and, and to get it to work but I, time and time again people I, I often Chris look outside our industry and I look and ask you know what are some trajectories in other industries that we could look at and the one that keeps coming back to me is fitness and well-being. You know, uh, 20 years ago, a gym, maybe a bit longer, but 20, 25 years ago, a gym was either a boxing gym or was on the side of a tennis club, which was manned by some guy who, you know, just looked after it every now and again. And then suddenly the, the corporations got involved and they realized that maybe, you know, maybe we should get in on this. And then suddenly personal trainers stopped being something that just rich people and celebrities had and they started to become commonplace. And now the idea of paying 75 bucks a week you know, four or five grand a year to go and have somebody tell you how to do push-ups. That's not, that's not unusual. You know, paying for these services and across a wide variety of things has just become normal and expectation. And I'm, I am of the belief that if as an industry, we can sort out the business model, if we can sort out, you know, the fact that we're no longer 
talking about you know our products and we start talking about the solutions, the, the things that people want to achieve, we have this opportunity to cross a, a divide and for our industry to do for people's financial uh, stress, happiness and all the rest of it, you know, what's been done in terms of, um, uh, you know, the, the, the awareness that people have now of fitness and longevity and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, look, I agree completely, Stu. So the way I see the marketplace in the moment for clients is thanks to technology and the internet and thanks to the complexity of our system in Australia for all things retirement and investment and social security and all that, every single Australian over the age of 40 is going to try and get financial advice in the next 10 years. Mm. I swear, every single Australian. The question is, where are they going to get it? Yeah, Are they going agreed. to get it from the advisor? Are they going to get it from the internet? Are they going to get it from Google? Where are they going? So it's just a question of where. So it's how you tap into that is quite important. But if I think if we go back a step, the, the, the start point for any practice owner today is to decide what type of super firm am I going to run? And, and a super firm, you know, we, we often do planning for business owners, which is strategic planning for business owners. And the first decision is, well, based on my personal financial plan, as a business owner, how big do I need this business to be? How much income do I need it to generate? What do I need it to be worth in the future if I sell it? Now, a lot of, uh, a lot of the people we talk to sort of say, I'm not thinking about selling. I've got 10, 15 years to go. That's great. So what cash flows does it need to generate over the next 10 or 15 years? Because we don't know what it's going to be. Worse. So you've got to decide how big your business is, how many people you want to influence, those sorts of things as a business owner to help shape the what type of firm am I going to build and what are the right systems, processes and what are the things I need to focus on because not everyone's going to build an IPAC or, uh, or Shadforce or, or something like that. Love it. So give us a high level. We're going to go into the detail. A high level idea of scale. How big you know, revenue, staff, clients is a, is a 10x firm generally going to be? Okay. How big do you need to be? Well, I think um, there's some great examples out there, and you, you need to uh, you need to look at the, the business models and the, the firms. Let me let me let me answer that in a couple of ways. First of all, IPAC sold for about 15 times EBIT, yeah, in 2002. Now it started in about 87, and by 96, when we sold to CBA, half the firm we sold to CBA. We we're already at half the the business valuation, so about actually that's not quite right because we must have done fifteen years. So look, we did about half our valuation and had about half our scale by the time we sold to CBA, and we did the other half of the valuation or the value up increase in the last five years. So it's a it's a when you grow a scalable firm, it's a slow start like any small business, but the bigger yeah. you get, the quicker you actually grow if you do the right things. So. IPAC sold for 15 times EBIT, Shadforce sold for about, or SFG sold to IWF for about 14.7 times EBIT. Um, DKM sold for 9 times, 9.3 times EBIT. Now they weren't that big, they were a dealer group, but they also had advice practices they owned. And so it's not a simple thing to answer, but I'd suggest mm. broadly, a 10 times EBIT firm is likely to have a maintainable EBIT of probably 5 million plus of EBIT. And it's probably going to have a track record of being able to grow its EBIT. So attracting the biggest multiples is a function of the maintainability of the EBIT and that the EBIT is growing. That's when you get the highest multiples. So if you convert that back to scale, 
you know, to have a $5 million EBIT firm, you're probably yeah. going to need at least 15 million of revenue um, once you get out to that level, definitely north of 10 to have 5 million of EBIT. And your EBIT, you know, over the last few years must have been growing. And look, when you get to that scale, there's a whole lot of characteristics of your business that play out that give, you know, give reason for why it might be worth 10 times EBIT. Cool. Is there a benefit to a, uh, of a smaller firm of just looking at some of this stuff anyway and implementing it uh, for other reasons? Look, absolutely. There's, uh, first of all, the, the, the size of firm you run has got to be to do with what your ambition is as a business owner. So I've already touched on that. You know, there's a whole bunch of things you can do in a um, firm that runs, you know, turns over less than a million dollars that will make it more efficient, more valuable, and improve your work-life balance. It means you work less hours uh, for the same amount of revenue than your peers do. So, um, you know, efficiency is an interesting one. A lot of people at the moment are outsourcing SOA, ROA to offshore providers, and that's not really an efficiency play. That's a, that's a margin play because it's just lower cost offshore. It's not actually that more, more efficient for you. It's just lower cost. So a lot of firms are not that efficient, and they're not that efficient because they haven't got their client proposition and engagement model into a space where it's very clear to the rest of their business model that supports them what's going on, how does it need to be delivered, and how can we be efficient? Because they haven't got Love that bit out right. So that's one part of it, efficiency. The other part of it is adding new clients. So if you've, if you've got a small firm, it's still important to add new clients. You all know that every year you lose a client or you lose money that you manage through people are either in wealth accumulation phase or wealth dependent phase. And when wealth dependent phase hits, money goes out the door, that's gonna impact your business model. So if you're not actually growing client numbers every year, you are declining, whether you see it year by year or not. They're probably the two big pieces of building, you know, even a super firm that's sub a million dollars. You've got to get those bits right. I love this uh, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, you know, we've got a two-day workshop coming up and a lot of what you've just spoken about is some of the stuff we're going to talk about. You know, how do you can create flow across your whole business? But I, there's a great question that I know we've both had many, many times before, which is you know, a great way to road test your business is what would happen if you triple, triple the number of clients in your business? What would break? What wouldn't work anymore? And I think when you constantly ask that question, you're, you're applying big, big business thinking to a small business. And by definition, if you build a model that can handle, you know, if not three times, then twice the amount of clients, then... You know, what you do with that extra time, it's entirely up to you. If it's, if it's work three days a week, if it's, you know, pet projects or if it's growth initiatives, uh, either way, you, you, yeah, you're getting close to what I think is one of the most, I think one of the real problems in our industry, there's just not enough true efficiency. And I totally agree about the offshoring thing. Yeah, look, efficiency, it's a function of what is your customer proposition and how are the expectations of the client set and managed over time and then delivered to? And I heard someone ask a question earlier about EBIT efficiency and service delivery. It yeah. all starts with what is, how is your client proposition actually made to the client and what are the expectations you create? Let me give you an example. I've got a client now, um, he's got about 160 clients and about 800 of recurring revenue. Uh, and he only works three days a week. And that's because he's got that customer proposition and that efficiency and his pricing and all those other little bits that make the big thing work. He's got it sorted out. So he only needs to work three days a week, 160 clients. He delivers a great proposition. He has fantastic, he only loses clients realistically when they die. It just, 
it's a great model and he's got a record so it can be done how many clients 160 800 and in revenue just yeah. mums and dads um, middle market australia we talk about it in marketing terms you know he's he might have a couple of clients that have got three million dollars but most of those clients are going to have between 500 and 1.5 mil i had uh, the great privilege of doing a little bit of work with a gentleman called Peter Fallon of a business called Personal Wealth Management up in Glenory. Unfortunately, Peter passed away last year. But um, prior to that, we sat down and spoke about his firm and he was selling it back to his licensee. And he was going in with the expectation he was going to get 2.5, you know, three times max. And the licensee just straight off the bat offered him uh, 2.7. Uh, and the reason, they, I, I, he said, what should I do? I said, well, the first thing you need to ask is, why do you want to buy my business? And the answer was, they wanted to buy his business as a, you know, a model that everybody else could, could uh, base their business on. And he did it because everything from his engagement process to his proposition, it was just there. It was a system. It was a model. It was literally a franchise in disguise. So, yeah, it was a really great lesson. Mm. Hey, man, should we get into the nuts and bolts? Sure. What hey, do we need to talk about? Uh, Chris, the kind of things I really wanted to talk about was the proposition, the brand, what it looks like. Uh, in this, you know, super efficient 10x, the type of advice I want to talk a bit about systems and processes, how they manage their staff, the offer, you know, the marketing muscles. You talked a bit about track record of business. We'll maybe touch on technology. You know, I'd love to talk a bit about whether, whether licensing matters or not. I'd love to get around to some of the, you know, what we call the fluffy stuff, which is culture and AR, HR, and then what else, whatever else is in the in the pod. Is that cool? All good. Okay. Jeff wants to know how often should you be reviewing EBIT, monthly or quarterly? Okay, great question. The scale of your firm will um, dictate that and the number of shareholders too. But generally what I'd say to you is, if you're running a small practice, you know, sub a million dollars of revenue, you should at least be pulling all your numbers out every quarter and having a look at how you're going revenue and how you're going expenses. And the key here though is, when you pull them out and have a look, the question is, well, so what? If you didn't start the year with a plan, you don't know if you're ahead or behind plans. So looking at them is one thing. Knowing what to do when you're looking at them and making a decision is another. You have no basis for a decision if you're just looking at them without a plan. So a lot of people sort of find don't have a business plan. So it's sort of like, well, why am I looking at it? What decisions do I make? There's a great book called Profit First. Have you seen it? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Yeah, that's worth reading. It, it sort of reflips re around the idea of uh, how you plan sort of the revenue. Uh, mm. I've recommended a few people. I should probably un unpack it and do a webinar on it, but that's really useful from my perspective, specifically if you know, you're aiming to build that, um, you know, that profit in your business as well. Michael wants to know, does, when does a firm change from being valued as a multiple of revenue to a multiple of EBIT? When it comes outside AMP would be one of them, but yeah, what, what else? Yeah, okay. It's not, a, it's not an absolute line in the sand, guys, and I'm going to do a bit of self-promotion here to save us a bit of time. If you go to my website on the home page, um, you'll find our practice valuation guide. It's a download, you'll fill in your details and it'll send you a, a, our practice valuation guide. In that, it goes into a bit of depth about how transactions are structured, how valuations are created and where those two things meet. If you're really interested in that, go and get that guide. It's free, just homepage of the website, centurionmarketmakers.com.au. Uh, the other part of the answer is as you increase scale, typically. so. When a business becomes too large for somebody else to buy, pick up and put inside their office, yeah. it's going to be sold on a going concern EBIT standalone basis. So most practices in our industry 
uh, the buyers here, the pur purchasers here, sorry, the, the buyers here, the vendors here, the buyer asks the vendor to come and sit in there and they run out of one location. It tends not to be an EBIT-based transaction. But you need to have scale. So what's scale? Once you turn over more than a couple of million dollars, you're probably going to get valued on EBIT, maybe at 1.5. In fact, the more profitable you are, the more systemized you are, the more likely you will be valued on EBIT. But yeah, it's, it's well north of a million dollars of revenue and probably closer to two. So when we talk about um, being systematized, I hear it as you need to find processes enabled by technology with a bunch of tools that make it easy for people to stick, stick between the lines. Is there anything we'd miss? Is that pretty much? Yeah. Okay, Systems cool. and processes are about technology and how easy it is for the people in your office to use it. Yeah. So uh, going out and finding the best possible people works really well if you're a high-end tech company building brand new products. But if you are an advice firm, you want to be able to have a system that runs with ordinary mortals that you can literally pick up off the street and drop into your business and know they're going to do the job. That's Absolutely, that's the test. How quickly can you bring someone up to speed on their role based on what you've got documented in your office? Yeah. Not personal so, training for six months. Uh, onboarding, online operations manual, love it. Uh, one more question, we're going to dive into it. Is there one thing you've seen that has produced the biggest efficiency gain? Show us your silver bullet, Chris. Yeah, the biggest efficiency gain, I've said it so many times now, it's the advice proposition. If your advice proposition and the process around it is consistent. You think about, you got the client, and immediately below the client is a little, I might do a pyramid here, shoot. Top of the pyramid, it. the advisor. And the advisor has the conversation with the client and sets all the expectations. Sitting behind the advisor is the power Oops. resource. Um, the power resource supports the advisor. Sitting behind power planning, is for customers is the rest of the advice business infrastructure sitting behind the advice business infrastructure is the afsl sitting behind the afsl is the platforms and products providers yeah good work Stu. advice Thank infrastructure you, that's your advice office outside yeah. of that next layer is the afsl next layer is product and manufacturing and investment and all that stuff the advisor is managing the interaction with the client across the top of that entire pyramid if you don't have a client proposition and a process or engagement model for delivering it consistently, instead of having one uh, 100 clients that can follow the same pyramid, you end up building multiple, not multiple versions of the pyramid, but multiple workflows through that pyramid. Absolutely. And you become really inefficient. I just want to add to that to say, I, I agree with the, the, what you put up there. I think the main thing is also recognizing that Although the advisor is managing a relationship at times, that doesn't mean that other people in your business, uh, your systems, your technology, your portals can't actually be a go-to resource for clients to actually engage with the firm. And I think particularly when there's an ongoing, ongoing uh, you're trying to scale an ongoing offer, recognizing that the one-to-one -one is part of it, but it shouldn't be that, you know, client, every single client shouldn't be going through the advisor every, for every single request. Otherwise, by definition, you end up with a pretty significant bottleneck. Absolutely. In fact, let me take that one step further. The advisor is creating the expectations for the client about how it all works. Now, the key is the advisor is creating those expectations based on what they say and, in fact, what you don't say in the client meetings. So you're the funnel for the information, but you're definitely not the bottleneck for all service. So, yeah, absolutely. Cool. You create expectations and it's about what you say or fail to say in the client meetings that 
manages that entire process. So what you don't want is 15 different processes running back down through that pyramid. You want yep. one consistent model. Love it. And if you want the evidence for that, that's what IPAC did. And in fact, that's what SFG did too. The, the probably the only variation SFG had that IPAC didn't, that became important at the time, was they had a second investment process offering that was low cost. And that's because there was a bit of fee resistance in you know, the late in, you know, 2009 to 2012 from clients. And so they produced a lower cost fee, lower cost option for those clients. Yep. So McGrath's another example of when in their heyday, they just took real estate and went, this is the way we're doing things. And they had everything from the furniture they put in, the sales process, and it, just, they, it was consistent and, you know, able to go. Uh, there's a great book on this called David Meister's Managing the Serv Professional Services Firm. And it's an old model now, but it's the same idea, which is you, you cut your teeth on new prices in the gray hairs at the top. And then eventually your aim is to push more and more complexity down the, the, the pike until three or four years from, from now, what used to be done by highly skilled staff is now so systematized and so um, process driven that it can be done at a lower level at a lower cost. Let's talk about uh, the attributes that make a business hugely valuable. Proposition and brand. Is there anything we haven't touched upon that we need to if you're looking at you know, super, super firm status? Yeah, I think we talked about proposition enough and I yep. definitely recommend not getting too hung up on brand. Nobody's going to create a brand based on the brand itself that is all compelling for clients. What do you mean But don't get hung up on a brand? Oh, I see people spend too much time and effort on what's the name of the firm, what colour should the logo be, what, what will it look like on its website. Yeah. No, I'm, it, the only reason IPAC got a brand, to be honest, was some of you might remember is Paul Clitheroe got on the TV in 1993 on a program called The Money Show and that developed a brand profile for IPAC. If he had not got on the TV, our brand would have been, you know, go out and ask how many of your clients today have heard of SFG? The answer will be next to none of them. Nobody's got a brand in advice space, okay? You don't, no. You're not Ernst & Young, so don't overinvest effort there. We, uh, when I was at Hellross, we spent a million bucks on the Australian Open sponsorship to try yeah. and shift public awareness. And when we actually got the, the numbers back, I think it shifted our awareness by 2%. The bottom line is, you know, advice is just not an, I, I, I think Retire Invest had a crack at it. It's not a space that anyone's gonna put a, a, a whole a flag in the ground and go, you know, we are the apple of advice. That's not the way it works. Especially in the digital age, it's really hard to, you know, to master. Yeah. So don't overinvest in the brand name itself or the, yeah. What, what, I want to add to this proposition, which is um, if you, and I'm coming from sort of the, uh, some of the start startup methodology here, we, we are coming from a place where we're a product dominated industry, where we'd create products, we then go out to a distribution network and sell them. And I think the problem is now of, of, with the spread of, you know, the online world, people's attentions are dropped. They're generally, people are looking to solve real problems. So if you've got a proposition that is, and Michael and Jason have done Sure, have done some great research into this and they're well progressed. But if you can focus on adding value to people through your proposition and, and being really clear about this is who we work with and these are the problems they have and this is how we help to solve them in an amazing or faster or a better or an easier or a cheaper or a, you know, more effective way, then it's, it's gonna, you're going to get so much more proposition than going out as an advice firm and talking about, hey, let, me, let us tell you about our amazing process or you know, how about we help you get clear about your goals? That's not a proposition. That is yeah. going to fly. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Love it. Okay. Brand and proposition. 
let's talk about type of advice. And Sean asked a really good question here. He's looking at a model where every area of advice is performed by specific niche experts, but managed under a single engagement slash relationship. He wants to know, you know, in your view of the type of advice, the way that advice is going to be given, is that, is that, is that on the money or is there another, another sort of way of doing it that you think is more relevant? Yeah, this is a good question. There's actually two parts to that question. One is his advice model and the one is his, and the other part is his business model. So the advice model, I'm going to deliver financial planning advice, which is about future planning and cash flow planning. Is, am I going to deliver tax and accounting advice? Am I going to deliver finance advice? They're all specialisations, estate planning. So that's your proposition. And any of those propositions need to create certainty for clients. You need to be selling more certain outcomes rather than less certain. Then there's the business model that sits behind it. So having a specialist for each is fantastic, especially if the client only has one go-to point to facilitate the conversation. They may need to go back through your firm, as we discussed earlier, to access different things. But when it comes to getting an outcome, just having to deal with one person, the, the the head of the client relationship, I think is a great model, particularly given where we are as an industry now and that there's not enough technology to change that significantly in my view in the next five or 10 years. So key client relationship person, specialisations across you know, different, different um, advice um, disciplines. Yeah, yep. makes great sense. You're gonna need a bit of scale to make that work or some you know, interesting business relationships with third party firms. So scale, it's either scale or partnerships. Yeah. Uh, what I wanted to ask about is what's your view on, you know, the, the future for deeply specialist firms? I mean, I, I don't want to sort of make myself a target, but if you're a risk specialist who just wants to do risk, or if you're a estate planning specialist who just wants to do standalone estate planning, what's, what's that going to mean for you in terms of a large valuation and, and a super firm? Yeah, look, I think, um, the same principles apply to getting to a large valuation. I think it's more about if you're going to be one of those specialists, what's your business model? How do you attract client? So one yeah. of the answers is, are you doing partnership work with other advisory discipline, other, other businesses? So we've already listed partnerships. So if yeah. I'm a risk-only specialist, I think you've got a bright future as long as you work out how to attract and retain clients. And you'll, you'll need to think about where's the industry at, where are consumers at, where are propositions at. And, my, and what I'm really saying is you're probably likely to need to work in partnerships with others who need it for their clients, yep. however, are not going to deliver the specialisation from an in-house perspective. Yeah, That's the key thing really, isn't it? Because there's so many ways. If one shop shops, one-stop shops continue to propagate or whatever that word is, uh, you know, it's, it cuts off a lot of opportunity because people naturally see, well, if, I'm, if you're doing mortgage broking, I'm doing mortgage broking in-house and you're doing it, then why would I have a partnership with you? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, there was one other question I wanted to ask in there. Yeah. What about bringing in non-advice specialists? Do you see 10X firms of, of their value to be created by having, let's say, you know, health and wellness specialists, business coaches, whatever, whatever it might be, and bring them into the, into the relationship? I can't say I've given a lot of thought to that. I mean, uh, where, where I'm really at is the evolution of advice firms across financial services. So I probably don't have a great answer for that one, not having thought right. it through. What about white labels? You know, do you think you, there is value in some a firm creating a white label, uh, you know, advice portal and then having other firms deliver advice within that brand but without actually uh, owning the relationship? 
So yeah, I think there's definitely an opportunity for that. If you've got something that's valuable and it's probably not a product or platform play, which it was for the previous 10 years. A great yeah. example of it actually is Fitzpatrick's. It's actually what yeah. Fitzpatrick's do. Um, they package up everything they do as an advice firm and let other advice firms use it. So it's a bit like a franchise again. Uh, there's an opportunity, I think, when you add scale, so when you start an advice firm, you tend to do everything yourself and then you hire someone and then you hire someone else and then you get third parties to give input and then you eventually get enough scale where you also have your own technology and your own systems and process and your own products or platforms or investment solutions. And I do see that changing significantly over the next 10 years and that has a link to when do I become self-licensed because I think there is a lot of value in being in a large licensee up to a point and yep. then there's the point when you accumulate sufficient scale that you are more efficient if you have your own investment management and product set in-house, whether you charge for that or not to clients and deal with the conflict of interest is a different issue, but you yep. become more efficient as IPAC and uh, SFG and Snowball and all those things. You become more efficient by having your own investment management capability and product sets and then that links to the whole licensee proposition. So if you build all that scale out, there are other firms that will want to use it. Love it. What about uh, the service offer? What does a 10X service offer look like compared to you know, a, a non-10X one? So a 10X service offer might actually be the same as many other firms, or in fact, it could even be simpler. It's actually more about, again, that advice process, consistency and creating certainty of outcomes for clients mm -hmm. so that clients get it. So as you said earlier, it's not, come and let me tell you about our great uh, advice model. It's mm. come and let me help you identify a better way to get to your outcomes, Mr. Client. Now, cool. you know, I'd argue that at least in IPAC's time, um, there are clients out there, uh, sorry, businesses out there with far more sophisticated advice or service offers than IPACs, um, but it was about the certainty we created and the transparency of the advice process and the outcomes for clients that made it valuable because clients could go off and tell other clients or prospects about their relationship with us and how they understood what they were going to get out of it. So the referral process was very strong. Love it. Let's talk about staff because you went from 33 to 200. And uh, one of the things I've, so I've had this conversation with a couple of power planning firms who grow, grew really quickly. And there comes a point in any businesses, particularly if they're getting big, where it's, they stop just being a business that gives advice and they start being a business that also, you know, to some degree, an HR business. Yeah, I think that's right. A HR business and I think a training business because you mm -hmm. need to have systems and process to train new staff. So earlier on, I talked about business owners needing to make a decision on what type of business they needed based on their yep. personal financial objectives. There's another part of it, which is about their role. So some of you out there will be able to build a super firm, a large, super scalable firm, but you'll need to decide and get clear on what you're best at and what you really enjoy. So some of you won't be the CEO of that firm, but you'll still own it or own some of it, and it'll still be you know, a huge scalable firm. So your role becomes really important. Others of you will actually take on the CEO role, CEO role and be the business leader, and that's about leadership. So I guess what I'm saying is you, you need to, as you grow, your firm grows, and it will need um, systems, process, tools, and skill sets that you might not have today as a business owner, and you yep. need to decide. You know, most of us are born 
as natural leaders, you, you, you learn and develop skills over time and many leadership skills can be learned and developed. So you can choose to be a leader, but if you know in your heart that you really don't want to be the leader, you like the idea of being in charge, but you're not going to be a CEO and coach and manage and train people, then don't sign up for that part of the journey. When the time comes, you'll need to hire someone to do that. Absolutely. And have a plan to, to transition out of it over time. Uh, licensing. doesn't matter when you're talking about business valuation. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll keep it short because I've just touched on it. No, it doesn't matter a lot. In fact, too many people move to their own license for a whole bunch of reasons they rationalise for themselves but aren't relevant to their clients or the people that aren't their clients and they're trying to attract. So there are good reasons to be in a large licensee. There is a point in time where you'll reach enough scale where you probably need to get your own license to be able to bring in the other types of tools, systems and process that you need to use to continue to grow your firm. Love it. What about the fluffy stuff? Vision, culture, planning, HR. Fluffy. Fluffy. <laughs> so it's pretty fluffy when you're in start out and you're trying to generate your first 300,000 of recurring revenue because it's all you. And then you hire one person and then you hire a second person. Hmm. By the time you get to more than about five or six direct reports, yeah. you have to start putting in a practice manager and then it grows out a bit from there. Eventually, what I'd call leadership starts to play out. Leadership involves coaching and growing your team, yeah. uh, training, setting the vision, setting the strategy and communicating that stuff. That stuff becomes very, very important and that's where I said earlier, you need to decide... You can do it for a while even if your heart's not in it, but you'll need to decide for yourself as a business owner, what's the right role for me if this was a 50-person firm? Ask, you can ask yourself that question today and then you can set yourself up for that journey. Whether you get to 50 people or not, doesn't matter. Once you get layers of, let's call it, middle management in there, that's when that decision becomes more important. I love it. Vision, day-to-day rhythm, 90-day plans, whatever it might look like, as well as uh, you know, sitting down doing coaching, ideally monthly with the staff. Um, yeah. Yeah, you, yeah. Do. you need to give them a chance to talk, give feedback, converse. And yeah, 90-day plans I love. When you're running a small business, sprints. Just work out what are we up to, what are we going to do for the next 90? Absolutely. Let's talk about tech, technology. What's, uh, what, is an, what does a 10x firm have to have technology-wise? I think uh, when we drew that pyramid earlier of what an advice model involves, you have to have the systems and process and workflow that allows that stuff to work fairly efficiently. And that's where I said it, if you have more than one or two operating models sitting inside your business across that pyramid, it can become very confusing, a technology or workflow nightmare, and it becomes hard to train people. So technology is only as good as the people that use it. So when you've got it, you need to use it well. It needs to use workflow. But if you're trying to build it to, to do too many things in a small business, you can overinvest. So, yep. you know, to give you an example, if I was, you know, running a small business today and in startup mode, and you know, it was me and one other, and I'm turning over 300k of recurring revenue, I wouldn't be overinvesting in technology. I would be using an X plan or a coin or something, but you know, I wouldn't overinvest effort. If I had six staff, I'd be starting to invest seriously in workflows. If I had a practice manager, and you know, and what those workflows look like, I think it's threads in X plan. And, not sure in coin. And there are other tools now out there. Yeah, there are other tools. And this is one of my bugbears about X-Plan. Like we could talk about tech 
Uh, there's two schools of thought. One is you just choose one and you dive in with both feet and you accept the imperfections, which is cool because where we need technology to be and where it is, is, is there's a big gap. Or you sort of plug in specialist tools. And my view has always been workflow. You know, you reach a point where eventually you can't manage the flow of tasks coming through the business just in your head. Uh, and then you start looking around and go, I need a tool that's easy to implement, easy to use, and is actually going to get used. But uh, yeah, knowledge management, I think, is another big one as well. Yeah, that's very true. And that links to training. So I'd agree with your first proposition. There are, I see too many firms trying to invest effort into tech. Unless you're a 40, 50 person firm with 10 million or 20 million of turnover, building your own tech makes no sense at all. You've got to use what's out there and you've got to adapt it and accept the imperfections. Make sure that whatever tech you're using is actually solving a real problem for you. Uh, general, we, the, the te acid test we have in the business uh, is ask yourself the question, is this a problem right now that's going to stop me from growing or stop me from servicing clients? And is what I'm selecting going to make it faster, better or easier within a, within a reasonable time frame? If the answer is no, either don't do it or look elsewhere. Yeah. Cool. Look, most businesses I meet, arguably, should be spending money on how they attract new clients. That's where they should be spending money and they should live with their imperfections because I've seen very, very few businesses that are actually at their capacity and bursting and losing clients because they're not servicing efficiently or not doing things efficiently. I see a lot of businesses that aren't efficient, though, who are bursting at the seams. Right. So, so in other words, so they feel like they're really busy. Feel like they they haven't got any time in the day. Everything's just out of control. But when you actually look underneath it, they're incredibly. They're probably operating about thirty to forty percent in uh, efficiency. It's a real problem. Yeah. Okay. That's usually not tech, though. That's often proposition, workflow, being clear about what the client should get, when they should get it, and those sorts of things. So it's more. It's often business model related. Totally business uh, model. Yeah. Yeah. It's not. I mean, a, a yeah. lot of the other thing is a lot of businesses throw tech at a problem. Like, oh, let's get some workflow threads. And they buy, they spend you know, thousands of dollars on a license and then they, they sit down with the X-Plan guy and says, great, show me your processes. Oh, we're hoping that, you know, you've got them. And suddenly they're in a situation where they've either got to take someone else's processes, which suddenly they've, they've got a training issue. Not, not a, they've got a training issue because they've got to learn how to do the process and then they've got a training issue because they've got to learn how to do the, the software. So there's a great model called the Sherlaw's Two Walls, which explains, you know, why most businesses hit this problem. But anyway, yeah. hey, we're well over time. This is super useful. Is there anything we haven't covered that we probably should touch on quickly? Or is, is that pretty much a good blueprint? I think, uh, you know, for me, when I talk to business owners, if you're trying to build an asset that's trying to deliver cash flow, you start with what we discussed earlier. What's it need to look like for me as a business owner, my family, mm. my personal financial plan? What do I want it to look like for staff? What do I want to look like for clients? And then you can build a super firm. It can be small. But if you want to build a 10x firm, it's probably going to be large and you need to work out what you need to do to get there and why you want to get there. But you can still build a firm that at its heart has the same principles as a 10X firm, which enables you to work two days a week or do whatever you want. And that's, I think that's I the think, two ends of the spectrum. That's definitely the case. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. If you define it by, yeah, how much work effort you put into getting your result. Absolutely. I love it. And this is really useful because uh, we're going to cover off a lot of this stuff. Hey, do you have any recommendations for progressive, flexible, innovative licensees? Wow. That's a yeah. good question. Okay, so look, the, 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 the licensee answer is partly to do with what is your business model and who are your clients now and what customer segment. And so what are you doing now? So you need to find a business, a licensee that's suitable for the type of business model you've got and can support you to where you're going. Now, I know that's a bit generic, 
So there's not a right licensee answer for every business. It does depend a bit on your business model. So, you know, I could argue that MLC licensees are great licensees if you've got a particular paradigm and a particular operating model. Um, I could argue that the Fitzpatrick model is a good one as a licensee. They're very different licensees. And another example of a great licensee, depending on your business model and what you're trying to do, might be a Securitor. Now, do I favour any of those? No, but it does depend a bit on, you've all got different businesses with different clients and different propositions, and you're at different stages of operating efficiency and growth and that sort of thing. So yeah, it's a, it's a horses for courses outcome. Fantastic. Chris, this has been awesome. I've taken, I've taken a whole bunch of notes. Um, I think the main thing, excuse me, that really struck home for me is, is the scale of the opportunity. Um, the really thing that hit home to me is the idea that the engagement model, how you start off by engaging with clients and how you get consistency from that first um, touch point really defines a whole bunch of things from expectations to how they engage your business to you know, whether they fit in with the model that you designed as yeah. well as um, some real insight into you know, staffing, tech, which is you know, my sort of interest and a whole bunch of other things. Chris, mate, um, if people want to find out more about you or what you do or particularly if, you know, if, they're, if they're likely to be the kind of person who would engage you, Tell us a bit more about how they would do that. Sure. Look, I think perhaps your clients, Stuart, the people that attend your webinar are probably people thinking about growth and trying to think about doing great things. Some of them will be thinking about acquisition and some of them will think, hey, I should have a chat to Chris about acquisition. Our service for people wanting to acquire businesses, you can find out about on our website, but essentially you need to register with us as someone that wants to acquire a business and you do that through our website. We'll mm -hmm. get in touch with you when a business comes up for sale in your area. Um, we don't have a product-based or specific paid service to help people acquire businesses. All of, our, all of our work today, our business model is all built around helping existing business owners who want to sell or existing business owners who are conducting succession, perhaps bringing internal shareholders in. Centurionmarketmakers.com.au, you'll see the pages, buying a practice, selling a practice, succession planning and some of the other services in there. Perfect, and Centurion, how come Centurion? Yeah, that was one of those uh, examples of over-investing too much effort <laughs> into a brand name. So I can yeah. tell you from first-hand experience nine years ago, yeah, way too much effort went into that. Um, yeah. Centurion is the Roman Centurion, he's the leader of 100 men. Right. And if you have a look at our little logo, it's meant to look like the Colosseum, which was you know, the foundation of uh, the great Centurion uh, army, well, not the foundation, but it was part of that whole um, imagery for Centurion. So the leader of 100 men and market makers was all about creating a marketplace for the buying and selling of assets. Fantastic. Mate, it's uh, obviously a lot more thought went into that than our dairy though. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, which was, which was a motto on a football shirt on my wall, which I like the sound of. But anyway, there we go. Chris, mate, always, always a pleasure. Um, and, yeah, thank you very much for your time this morning. Other than that, if you want to sort of check out uh, Chris's stuff, I can highly recommend his report. It's, um, in, if you're looking just for information on how to acquire, how to sell, and valuations, it's probably the clearest and best information on, you know, on the market, in the market out there. Uh, other than that, uh, for those of you I'm seeing next week in Sydney, really looking forward to it. Um, if you haven't done any pre-work, make sure you jump in, get it back, because that's, that's kind of important that we know where you're at and what you've nailed. Other than that, Chris, mate, what does the rest of the day got in, in store? I had a couple of video conference meetings and then I've got to work on a bit of marketing content this afternoon. 
So oh. I don't know how many of you are on our blog or our list. In fact, jump on my list. Get onto my website, subscribe to something and get our blogs on practice valuations and business sales and what's going on in the marketplace. Uh, and uh, yeah, we'll send that stuff out and even invite you to a webinar or two. Yeah, perfect. Love it. Cool. Well, I am going to go and crunch through a bunch of work and then I'm looking after the kids all this weekend. So Rachel's in Melbourne. Uh, that's right. Mr. Mum. Uh, yeah, Mr. Mum, exactly. <laughs> so uh, I'll catch up with you next week. See you later, Chris. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me. Bye. So there you have it, ladies and gents, uh, the anatomy of a super firm with Chris Wrights. And I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you get some insights. Even if your goal isn't to build, you know, a world dominating super firm, I think there's always, you know, one or two things that we can take from it that are going to make life a bit easier for all of us, right? Uh, as always, I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to subscribe. If you really loved it, feel free to share it. And don't forget, check out uh, Chris's uh, website, Centurion Market Makers is his business. Uh, if you are interested in buying or selling, uh, particularly you know, if you've got plans in the next 10 years to do so, go and check out, if not uh, his services, then at least go and check out his Market Makers report because it's always, I think, the best judge of uh, business valuations in the industry right now. That's it from me. I want to say one final thing. If you're loving uh, some of this, uh, we've got a lot more to come. Please subscribe. But equally importantly, I do a lot of work with businesses who are ready to step into the coaching space. Uh, I run a program called The Leverage Advice Firm, which has been going for uh, about six years now. And we've worked with literally well over 100, if not coming out to 200 businesses to help them improve their businesses across a number of different areas. Uh, you can get all the information on our dairy.com.au. Uh, the programs are right up there in the menu. Uh, and of course, if you've got any questions about this or anything else, feel free to drop me a line at help at ourdairy.com.au. Other than that, ladies and gents, thanks again for listening to The Finnovator. And uh, I look forward to uh, speaking with you. Is that the word we say as a podcast? I look forward to talking at you. I don't know. Anyway, I look forward to the next time. Take care.